Good to see you. Glad you're here. Hey, uh, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. I hope you guys had a fantastic Thanksgiving. I know for us, we really did. We had a blast. We did Wednesday with my wife's family and then Thursday with our family. And so it's just, honestly, it's like probably too much turkey, too much everything. Um, I, I read a statistic that, um, that people... Um, on average, gained about seven pounds during the holidays. If that's true, I'm already like at least more than halfway there. So I've got, um, I've got to budget my calories a lot better for Christmas and all of that. But that shouldn't stop you from making me Christmas cookies, by the way, because I would totally eat them. Uh, you guys, um, before we launch in, just a couple of quick announcements. The first one is that this upcoming Wednesday, December 1st from 7 to 9, is our first ever girls' night out which is going to be so much fun. Um, and the basic premise is this. Guys, stay home. And ladies, come out, dress up, have a great time. There's going to be food and drink and just a lot of celebrating and getting to know each other. And we'd love for you to come. Um, also, Bria and the team is going to be letting you, a little bit, letting you know about some of the future of Riverbend Women and the other things that we have planned. So um, it's going to be great this upcoming Wednesday from 7 to 9 right here. Um, the next thing that I want to remind you of, as I often do, is we are a praying church. If I am um, graced to live like another 30 years and to keep pastoring, I'm still going to be talking to those of you who stick with me um, that we are all about praying and seeking the presence of God. It's one of the reasons why I got into this line of work is because my life has been changed deeply um, by, by practicing the presence of God and encountering him. And if I could do anything in life, um, it would be to guide you into that kind of life as well. And so um, we have several different opportunities every week that you can join us for prayer. Uh, Tuesdays from 8 to 9. Um, also, some of you work and can't make that happen. So six, uh, on Wednesdays, 6.30 to 7.30, we'll be praying through the Psalms. And then on Thursday evenings as well, starting at 6.30, led by Greg, who um, was on keys today, there will be worship and prayer and seeking God um, and listening prayer as well. So um, this is only the beginning. We are going to keep bringing you with new, different, more times so that we can remove all reason to not be able to make it because we really do want to guide you into a life of prayer. I think it's at the center of Jesus's heart. Rant over. Um, so with that, would you please stand with me for a reading from the scripture? Jesus, we are grateful that you've called us back into your presence again this morning to enjoy you and ideally be transformed by you. And so we ask that in your name today, you would do that. Um, we don't need another TED Talk. We need to be transformed by Jesus. We need your work in our lives. And so we just ask that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we go. Therefore... Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand." The rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Next slide. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. So um, there it is, you guys the long-awaited conclusion to Jesus' guide for you to flourish in life. Most of you thought we would never get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, but here we are. The day has come. Um, it's fascinating to me that Jesus concludes and sort of underpins his whole teaching with this metaphor about a builder who builds his house on a rock. 
Most of you are familiar with this passage. Even some of you who are avid students of the Bible already knew that this message was coming because you know the end of the story. Um, But even if you're new to the Bible, you've probably heard that hymn, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And it's just this really cool hymn. I love the words of it. It's a beautiful message about the confidence that you and I share and the secure hope that you and I have in following after Jesus. It's still one of my favorite hymns. Actually, um, not only that, my, my mentor um, loves this passage of scripture so much that he named their church plant Solid Rock Church. And then 10 years later, they rebranded it as Westside Church, or as I like to call it, the church formerly known as Solid Rock, which I think as far as church names go, that's pretty on point. I love that. Um, also, when you think about it, though, like Solid Rock sounds a little bit like a cliche Christian music festival from like the 1990s. You know what I'm saying? You know, I'm not knocking it. It's my heritage, too. I probably would have bought the T-shirt and all of that. And it was designed, you know, with the Metallica font or whatever. You know what I'm saying? You guys get what I'm saying. Sometimes we're a bit cliche. We're all about Jesus, but sometimes our designers need a little help. If you ask me, that's why we have Danny and others who are phenomenal at design. Um, But whether or not we'd still rock the t-shirt is besides the point. The metaphor about building your house on the rock is timeless. It's timeless because it's wisdom straight from Jesus, and it's the scripture. And my conviction is the scripture always holds up. There's things that we would like to know, and there's lots of further study to do, but the scripture always holds up. So what we want to do today is understand Jesus's heart and his intention behind the metaphor. And of course, not only do we want to hear about it, but we actually want to live into it. So my job is to do my very best to sort of uncover the layers of meaning here. And uh, your job, if I can be so bold, is to suspend any preconceived ideas that you you may have about this passage that isn't actually helpful in guiding you into the understanding of what Jesus's heart actually is. Okay, so let's get into it. Um, the story that I just read is firstly a wisdom exhortation, what's called a wisdom exhortation, meaning it's an invitation for you to enter into a wise way of living which according to Jesus is completely synonymous with his way from the Sermon on the Mount. So if you've been around these last couple of months, it's the way that Jesus has been um, talking about all, all along. He's saying these are one and the same. The way of wisdom and my way are one and the same. And if you're a Jesus follower, what you're saying is that you buy into that. Uh, the way that Jesus sees reality and calls us to live in it is spot on. That's what we're saying if we say we follow Jesus. So the specifics of the metaphor are um, kind of straightforward as well. So let me just kind of recap them for you in case like you're still waking up and you only had one cup of coffee. And um, I'll just repeat what the scripture says. The first thing is this. There are two builders, only two, one wise and one foolish. And the wise man builds his house on a rock, whereas the foolish man builds his house on sand. And then this is kind of like the point or the moral, if you will. The wise man's house is able to endure whatever storms may come because his foundation is strong. But the foolish man's house cannot endure because its foundation is weak. It's, again, really straightforward. So it's probably making sense. Virtually no one um, will dispute any of what I just told you because it's really, really clear here in the text. What the metaphor represents, what it's talking about in actual reality, is also super clear because Jesus spelled it out for us in no uncertain terms. Here's what he says. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. But verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. So uh, here is the whole message in a word. The only difference between the wise and the foolish person is practice. It's practice. According to Jesus, that's the difference. So the wise man builds his life on what Jesus taught him, 
plain and simple. The foolish man does not. So the question that we are being asked here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is, will you put your trust in Jesus' vision and will you build your life on it? Will you do what Jesus taught you? That's the conclusion. That is unequivocally the very center of the heart of this passage that we just read. One scholar writes this, building a house on a rock is not about working hard in the construction process or being clever or knowing when the flood is coming. It's about building on the rock. So Jesus does not demand heroic deeds or supernatural feats, but deeds of love. The kind that he teaches, like in Matthew 25, aiding those who are hungry, are in prison, or in need of clothing and basic needs. So the rock is just one thing, hearing Jesus' words and doing them. And I love that so much. Amen. So wisdom is the integration of Jesus' teaching with the soil of your life. According to Jesus, that's wisdom. The integration of his teaching with the soil of your life. So again, what does Jesus say about your sexuality? Do that. What does Jesus say about your finances? That's what you do. Do that. What does he say about your life of prayer and your commitment to the outsider? Do that. That's building on the rock, according to Jesus doing what he teaches. So much more on practice and integrating Jesus' vision into your life as we go along here. But I have to nuance this out, which is by now kind of like an unofficial tagline around here because I often say we have to nuance it out. And the reason for that is there's always layers of meaning that we need to uncover here. And um, here's just a thought for you to consider with me. Despite this being one of the most straightforward teachings from Jesus, there's no dispute about what it actually means. I think that the church in the West or evangelicals in the West have largely accidentally internalized the exact wrong thing about this message. And here's why. We have equated the reference of the rock or sometimes referred to as like the firm foundation We've equated that with clarity on truth. And I don't know why this is, but it just it seems right to our brains for some reason. And so, for example, when people hear the name of the church that I just told you about, Solid Rock Church, what they infer is, oh, that's like a, that's a really clear Bible teaching church. They're really clear on what the Bible says. Now, to be completely honest and fair, Phil, my mentor who planted that church, is a really clear Bible teacher, and that is a good thing, and we aspire to be like that here at Riverbend too. But what we should infer from church names like that is not whether or not we're good at talking about the faith whether we're good about talking about the truth. When we hear names like Solid Rock, that's a Bible living place. They put it into practice there. They actually know what it is to care for the poor. They make room for outsiders. They know how to pray. They haven't lost the plot of Jesus' redemptive heart for the world, and they're committed to it. They don't hesitate or, excuse me, retaliate against hate. And they're committed to things like hospitality and purity and holiness and all of the stuff. So building on the rock is Bible practice, not Bible learning. And you might think to yourself, that's really kind of like splitting hairs. And if you ask my wife, that's my least attractive quality. I tend to agree with her on that. I'm sure she's right. But I'm not doing that. It's actually a a world of difference between Bible practice and Bible learning, and it's exactly Jesus' point. Knowledge of truth and cognitive assent does not make you wise, and it will not empower you to endure the storms of life. Understanding without action is actually the opposite. It's Jesus' definition of foolishness. He's saying, what good is it for you to know all of this if you haven't integrated it into your life? Cue the list of former pastors who made a name for themselves because they were charismatic communicators, but they did not endure because their hidden lives did not match 
their Bible teaching. And this is what Jesus has been going on and on about throughout the sermon, as he's calling for an integrity and solidarity in our hearts that we actually live the things that we say we're about. So the contrast between the wisely or foolishly built houses is not their appearance or how they look on the outside. The difference is at the hidden level of the foundation. The hidden level of the foundation. Or like Jesus has been going on and on about, the heart. It's about the heart. It's about your obedience to God from the heart. I've said it at least 100 times throughout the course of our 25 sermon series, uh, uh, 25 um, uh, teaching series um, throughout the course of, of, of these last five months. Jesus wants your heart, and that's what he's always been after, and that's what he won when he died on the cross so that you could be forgiven and accepted into the family of God. In the letter to the church from James, he sort of restates what Jesus is talking about here at the end of the sermon. And he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Come on. So as we wrap up this series, um, this is my hope for you. This is what um, I hope can be said of us, that humbly you and I are aspiring to be the kind of people who integrate Jesus' teaching into our whole lives. And this is uh, a, like what Jesus calls being a disciple, practicing the way of Jesus. A disciple is someone who practices the way of Jesus and they are living in the way of wisdom. The Great Commission, for example, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. That is the Great Commission. That is what is almost like a purpose statement for the church and what we're doing is to become actual disciples. So in great contrast to some of the former examples that you might actually be ringing in your ears, the hypocritical examples, the self-righteous examples that we can point to in our culture. I'm fortunate that I get to know and do life with a lot of you who actually know what it is to follow after Jesus in this way and to build your house on a rock. Um, just this week, a couple days before Thanksgiving, um, we were invited by a new family in our church who I sadly don't see this morning. Names are uh, Naomi and Keith. And um, we went over to their house. They swung the doors wide open for us. They laid out this incredible meal and they wrote us a card and all of their family signed it. And it was like the sweetest thing on planet earth. And we're like, oh my gosh, what is this? And they're like, the Bible tells us to honor our leaders. And so that's what we're doing. We just want to honor you, appreciate you and want to have you over. So we sat down and we heard bits and pieces of their life story. And it is a lot. Like um, up until a couple of years ago, both of them were severely drug addicted and living an incredibly dangerous life, but the Lord radically saved them and through the gospel, and they are alive in Jesus now. And now, the life that they lead, I left going like, how do they look so much like Jesus? This is incredible. It made me uncomfortable. It convicted me and challenged me in the best way. For example, one of the things, well, a couple of things. First thing um, that Naomi and Keith do, they have a very self-sacrificing profession. They have many um, people who are unable to take care of themselves on their own because of their mental handicap. Um, they, they live with Naomi and Keith. And 24-7, day after day, they take care of their practical needs. And so when we're sitting down having dinner, it's not just us and them and their kids and our kids. It's all of us plus their whole crew. 
And it was so beautiful to see their genuine love and care for these people and how they, how they looked out for them and cared for their needs. And on top of that, they said, listen, we've been saved from so much and we read in the Bible that we're supposed to care for the poor. So on Wednesdays, we take the extra food that we have and they don't have a lot. They, have, they live like many of us, middle class life. And they empty their fridge and their freezer and their pantry and they make the biggest spread of food that they possibly can and they get into their truck and they grab some tables and chairs and they roll down the china hat and they go to where the houseless camp is there and they say, hey, dinner's happening in a couple of minutes. They set everything up, set out the chairs and sit down and eat with human beings made in the image of God who don't have a home to live in. This is a powerful, powerful testimony of a Jesus-like person. Now, um, Naomi and Keith would be the first to tell you, thought that they had this like really nuanced and philosophical and like deep, sophisticated worldview. They're just literally going, I, I read that. <laughs> Jesus said that's what he was about, that we're supposed to be about, and so we're just doing that now with the time and the money that we have. We're just gonna do that as much as we can. Oh, we walked out of there going like, that is Jesus like to a T. That's building house on the rock. That's what that is. That's building house on the rock. So the beauty of that and the beauty of this message and this metaphor, by the way, is that it's simple. Yeah, the Lord must have known that we needed simplicity. Um, I certainly do. It's just a story about two builders. There's one who's wise. There's one who's not. And um, the foolish one builds a house on sand, wise one builds his house on rock. And basically the question is, which one do you want to be? Like, that's what it is. And Naomi and Keith, they have their answer. and They're already doing that. And for any of us who have any sense at all, I don't think any of us really entertain the fool, like, oh yeah, I, I want to be the foolish man. Of course, no one's actively choosing that, right? Or at least we wouldn't admit to it. If you're willing to go with Jesus on that little story for a bit, Obviously, the answer is like painfully obvious. You want to be wise. You want the house that will withstand the storms of life. However, the temptation of our time is to hold out for a third option. That's what we do here in America. We like the third option. Every morning, I ask my son, would you like apple juice or water? And every morning, he replies, chocolate milk. I don't know why that is, but it's just something that's like baked into our DNA. We're looking for the third option. Can I have another choice, please? Um, maybe it's because we live at the end of the Oregon Trail. We have to always blaze our own way. That's who we are in the Pacific Northwest. Now, I'm not suggesting that any of you or any of us are consciously rejecting the simple choice that Jesus is putting out for us. We don't really love binary choices in our culture because we love the sophistication of having a complex worldview or whatever, but the reality is, as Jesus is saying, you can choose to build on a wise foundation, which is the rock of my word and practicing my word, or you can choose this other way. Um, so I'm not saying that any of us are doing that, but what I am suggesting is that our culture if I lost you, please come back to me because this matters. Sometimes I lose people because I rant, but come back to me because this, is, this really matters. I'm suggesting that our culture has been influencing you since you became self-aware at like age four to do things your own way. Your identity, your goals, your ethics are completely yours to define and bring into the world. So following anyone, let alone following after Jesus, who's guiding you into a way that's self-sacrificing, willing to turn the other cheek and give to the poor without recognition. That's grating against our Western sensibilities, to put it mildly. So what we do is we just try and find option C. Like, which option C is we try really hard to incorporate Jesus into our existing vision. We try and add a little bit of Jesus into our recipe. It's already fully formed. It looks, it's a bad option, by the way, just cutting to the chase. It's a bad option because um, it looks like Christianity, but only on the outside. In reality, it's exhausting, and we're just adding a couple of Jesus' ideas to our existing vision. And the main problem with that is that it's still a foolish foundation to build your house on. 
It's not a strong foundation. If you're paying attention to Jesus, he's saying, nah, it doesn't really work like that. Now, the reason we do it, I understand, we, we do it because um, we live in the West, it's kind of the air that we breathe, but also because we've done a fair amount of building already and we kind of like what we've built. And so we don't necessarily love the idea of starting over on Jesus's foundation. So for example, we have built our lives on our career goals. Now, some of this might feel critical, and that's not the spirit of it, but if it sounds that way, I promise I'm going to say some nice things in a minute. My life is built on my career goals. Sure, I'm busy. Sure, I'm tired. I have no margin for caring for my family, let alone contributing to the Christian community, or let alone caring for the poor, or being a part of a movement of prayer for revival. But I'm moving up in the world. My life is going up and to the right in the direction it's supposed to, sort of working out for me. And so I really like the foundation and the, build, uh, the, the, the house that I'm currently building. Or we've started building on like the paradigm of freedom and comfort. The paradigm of freedom and comfort. That is this idea that I'm pretty autonomous and that I enjoy basically doing whatever I want to do. And so um, that's what my life is basically about me. And I've done the cost-benefit analysis on being a Christian and being in a Christian community. And it doesn't really pencil out for me. So I'm willing to incorporate Jesus in other areas of my life, but I'm going to keep that area sequestered because it's not really making sense. It's not going to pay off in the end, or at least it doesn't appear that way. So here I, I'm, I'm, I'm choosing to um, ignore that part of Jesus's vision for my life. So again, if that comes across as hypercritical, I'm not, that's not my heart. My heart is just to expose a little bit of the air that we breathe. We don't even notice necessarily how narcissistic the Western vision is until we actually face reality and face facts. But the reality is that the, the, the vision that culture would paint for you if you just watch holiday movies this season, as I know you're going to, it's about you and being happy with life as opposed to submitting yourself to Jesus's vision and finding real satisfaction and real flourishing in him. And that is what Jesus, again, is architecting. He's architecting that vision, which is compelling and exciting and captivating, but risky and extremely unpopular, especially in the air that we breathe. So that way of thinking of just sort of incorporating a little bit of Jesus into our existing vision is kind if we just were to go with Jesus' metaphor a bit further, it's like if a concrete truck showed up at your job site to pour the foundation, and you're like the project manager and the homeowner, and you see the truck roll up, and you go, oh, concrete. I love concrete. You know, right now we're building the walls and we're building the roof and we're going to put some like solar panels on there. We're going to make the exterior looking super nice. But could you come back when we get ready to pour our kitchen island? Because we really want a, a, a concrete countertop. And I saw some like really cool board form concrete on Pinterest that I want for my fireplace. So we'll give you a call. We'll give you a call when we're ready for the concrete, because we are going to use it just kind of in our own way. If you're the truck driver or the engineer or anyone who knows anything about building, you know how insane that sounds, because the point isn't to have concrete like somewhere in the house for aesthetic purposes. The point is to provide structural integrity to the whole building, and that's exactly what Jesus is saying. If it looks good, that's kind of the byproduct, and a lot of people can make concrete look good. But the wise builder starts with the foundation. It's the, yeah, come on, Nicola. My new brother, Nicola, in the second row. Fantastic to have you here, man. We build our entire lives on Jesus' vision and his teaching. We're not just adding him somewhere we think makes sense. We're incorporating him into our existing vision. We're building our entire lives on his teaching. So here's what, that, here's what that means. What that means is that my primary and first identity is that I'm a Jesus follower. It's who I am. It's the most important thing about me. It's not my Twitter bio. It's me. I am a Jesus follower. 
therefore I'm celibate, or I'm faithful to my marriage covenant, or I'm committed to not retaliate evil with evil, but to return evil with good. I'm guided through life by the Lord's prayer, and I want his will on earth as in heaven. And I'm generous to the poor because he's generous to the poor, and I love justice, and on down the list of ethical teachings from the Sermon on the Mount that I've been going on and on about. If you need a refresher, go back and listen to like the last 25 sermons because we've been talking about this for a minute now. My way is completely and totally influenced primarily by that framework, Jesus' framework. So then when decisions need to be made and when I need to form a new habit or whenever opportunities present themselves or whenever I respond to the world and to the people around me, I run it through that framework of Jesus' vision. You know, sometimes I've, as, I, as I teach the scripture, I've got a unique vantage point. It's kind of fun to be up here and to teach the scripture. And sometimes in the Sermon on the Mount, when we talk about things like enemy love and not retaliating and evil for evil, you get a lot of people like scratching their heads going like, wait, what's, what are you saying? And it seems so foreign and so upside down. And it's vastly unpopular in Western civilization, what Jesus is actually teaching us to do. The reality is is that now that this is who we are, we want to build on the foundation of his way and on his teaching. So, So therefore, again, just going deeper into that, what that means then is because I'm a Jesus follower, it means I'm faithful to my marriage covenant. So I don't even entertain the fantasy of another sexual partner because it's not who I am. I'm a Jesus person. I resist the urge to exaggerate and to promote myself in order to gain status. I curate my day to give my best time and attention to the Lord's prayer and to careful reading of his scripture. I swim upstream to the cultural narrative that life is primarily about me. I see other people as people that God has put into my path to love and to care for. These are the things that begin to take root and take shape in our life as we follow after Jesus. And personally, I'm 16 years into my journey with Jesus. I've been in the church way longer than that, but I started following Jesus 16 years ago. And by God's grace and in his name, I'm progressively replacing the foolish, childish, and deceptive vision of reality that I'm culturally conditioned to follow. And instead, gradually, day by day, the vision of Jesus' wisdom and love begins to possess my mind and my heart and guide my entire life. So what happens is, as we begin to build on the foundation that is the rock of Jesus' life and teaching, it begins to possess us and take hold in our hearts, and we actually want the things that God wants for us, rather than wanting our own selfish ambition. Um, Now, the best part of all of this is that it's not up up to you and me to have to try and figure out. Our, Our culture is a dominant force like if it was up to you and me to like try and sort out all the nuances of it and to read all the psychological journals and look at sociological trends and see what's going on on social media and what's shaping the way that we view reality and stuff like that it would be a losing battle every single time we just don't have the time or the energy or the manpower or the brain for it we're just not made for it Um, And so we would be in a tough spot if it were not for Jesus laying it out for us incredibly simply. He just says, you don't have to figure everything out. What I'm going to just, I'm just going to tell you where to start building. Just start building over here. Trust me, this is the spot. This is the strong foundation. This is the rock that if you build here, whatever comes at you over the course of life, you're going to be able to withstand it. It's going to go well for you. You will flourish. You will have fulfillment and contentment and a deep, meaningful life if you build where I tell you to build. So your walk with Jesus is not about your ability to figure things out. Um, Sorry that I chuckle with that, but I just recognize that that's something that is in me. And it's just not, it's not good. It's not real. All we are to do is to hear his words and put them into practice. Hear his words and put them into practice. 
So to close this whole series on the sermon, there's just two takeaways that I think the Lord wants us to hear. And the first one is to trust your rabbi. Trust your rabbi. At the beginning of the series, we um, mentioned that one of Jesus' vocations, in addition to being Messiah and king of all kings, he's also a rabbi, a first century teacher in the Jewish tradition. And he's, um, like as we just read, people are astonished at the great authority that Jesus has. He's teaching in this super compelling way. So he is a teacher. And so he's inviting us to trust him. He knows what the rock is all about. He knows what the rock is all about. So one of the things that I think I've noticed in myself and in the Western church is that we want to understand perfectly before we're willing to trust Jesus. Where, we like, where basically what we're saying is like, okay, Jesus, prove to me that this is the wise way to live, and then I'll start building over there. Once you prove it to me, I'll start doing it. And the innate problem with that is, number one, again, we're not built for it. He's the one with infinite wisdom, not me, not us. But also, he's inviting us into a life of trust. And it's not trust if after we've weighed all of the evidence and after we've evaluated whether or not it's true and whether or not we have ascended intellectually that, hey, you know what, that's all right and good, then we actually start building where Jesus taught us to build. But instead, it's to actually say, you know what, Jesus, you've actually shown me quite a bit that's irrefutable that I can fully trust you in. I can fully trust that you are who you say you are. You've revealed yourself to me, and I can perfectly trust you. Now, I think there's all kinds of really great reasons that we should explore and examine as we give our lives to Jesus and as we build our house on the rock. But at the end of the day, there will come a time where my understanding and where my wisdom runs out. My experience, my, my rational brain will run out. And instead, I, instead of putting it on Jesus to prove everything to me. Instead, I receive my responsibility to trust my rabbi. He's trustworthy. And then number two, this is the final reflection, and then it'll be at least a couple weeks before we talk about the Sermon on the Mount ever again, and that is to begin your practice. Don't you love that word, practice? It's a very intentional word chosen by Jesus. It um, carries this connotation of like taking action. Um, and it, some, in some places it's translated like do, like the action of doing. Um, but really what he's, what he's talking about is like um, putting into practice, making real in your life the things that Jesus is talking about. So um, let me end with just an illustration. Most of you guys know that over the last couple of years we've been doing a fair amount of work uh, remodeling this building. And it's a super long list, what we've done. There's still, I'm still daunted by the list that we have left to do, but we have done a ton of work. One of the things that we did was we replaced all of the old wiring that was throughout the entire building, which was made up of a couple of different things. It was made up of like old knob and tube wiring, which is kind of a... Um, like a dangerous and older way of wiring up buildings. And then it was also, there was like a bunch of work done in the 1980s that was all unpermitted, done by just like guys in the church or whatever. And so we inherited this massive web of like gnarly wires and everything else. And uh, we didn't really realize it until um, we started gathering in the space and making our way up into the attic and seeing what was actually there. And we go, oh man, we've got a lot of work to do up here. The other thing that we had to do is we had to add uh, 400 amps of service because back in 1941, when they originally hooked up power to the building, they only brought 200 amps, which at the time made a lot of sense. But what was happening in the early days of our church plant is anytime we would turn on the speakers and the ceiling fans were going into the kitchen, all of the power would shut down and go dark in here and <laughs> everything else. It was kind of funny. So we decided, man, we, we got to uh, bring in a bunch more, more power. So now we can run the AC and we can uh, fix stuff in the oven when we got that hooked up and going and we can play electric guitar all at the same time. 2021 is a dream world of endless possibility. We can do all kinds of stuff here now. 
So if, if, if replacing that wiring and bringing more power to the building feels like a complex job to you, it's because it is. It's extremely complex. I've learned way more about um, electricity than I ever would hope to know, and I still don't understand the half of it. Uh, but the guys who did the work, actually did the work, are my friends Dennis and his foreman um, named Sean. And, and the stuff that really freaked me out that I had no idea to, how to do, they do every single day of their lives with a smile on their face. And they showed up to the job with their tools in hand and they were happy as can be and they were crawling around our attic and into our crawl space and going every which way and laying conduit and wire and hooking up boxes and everything, whatever else they do. And um, it took them a bunch of time because it was a big job, but it was well within their capacity to do without batting an eye. Why was it possible for them and to me like completely impossible? Well, the reason why is because they started as an apprentice. Joe, you're an electrician. You started as an apprentice years ago. And as an apprentice, you train and you practice for years. Literally, I think the current regulation is 4,000 hours of, of work under a skilled electrician who shows them every step of the way what to do and how to do it. So it's more than just learning, cognitive learning in a classroom. It's about actually doing it in the field. And after practicing for years and probably a bunch of failure, what looked like a huge challenge to me turned out to be a breeze for them. And this is, I think, the vision of apprenticeship that we should internalize. It's like Jesus' first listeners, his audience to the Sermon on the Mount, the people who are actually there, guys like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Mary and Martha, and all of them, um, they, were, they didn't start out as superhero Christians and, or any of that. They, they weren't adept or skilled to begin with. Not anything close. That was actually kind of the point. They were the middle of the curve at best. And that was a scandal of Jesus' early movement was that anyone could become a disciple of Jesus if they chose to, not just the elite or the upper echelon. So the, so the way that we sort of internalize this for us today is no matter where you're at in your discipleship to Jesus today, the point that we've been circling these past few months is that Jesus is inviting you and I into something more than a 90 minute a week, two to three times a month when I'm in a lot of need kind of relationship. He's inviting us to apprentice him. He's inviting us to follow in his way 24-7 365. Now, that doesn't mean we like quit our jobs and, and our hobbies and just all move to a commune somewhere or anything like that. But it means that we look at life through this lens that we've sort of been carefully passing along to you throughout this sermon series. And it means that we reorder our lives around Jesus' vision, his, his, our rabbi's vision, the one who laid it out for us. We reorder everything about our lives according to him. Now, uh, it's possible that as I'm explaining this to you, you're going, gosh, that kind of seems like a lot. I don't know if I can handle it. It's actually refreshingly simple what Jesus is inviting you into. He knows us. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount um, assumes, you can tell in Jesus' argumentation how he kind of works out his, his points, that he assumes there's going to be failure, and he assures us that he has a tolerance for our weaknesses. So the, the gift of being an apprentice to Jesus is that I don't have to pretend like I've got it all together, that I'm buttoned up, and that I've got my exterior stuff worked out. I don't have to pretend. I can acknowledge the reality that there is a gap between who I am today and who Jesus is calling me to be. He's the one who perfectly loves his enemy. He's the one who serves humbly without reservation. He's the one who's able to turn the other cheek. I know that he isn't worried or anxious about life but I also know that I am not those things all the time. I can fall into those things. And one of the biggest mistakes that we can make at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which a lot of people make this, make this mistake, is they go, oh man, there's a bunch of like high ideals that I can't possibly hit. I'm just going to basically ignore them. Again, that's the foolish way of living. And much of the church has basically just become antinomian and said, ah, I don't know. 
I don't know how to deal with that. I can't hit those ideals, so I won't even bother. But the reality is that that's not the message to internalize. The shame and the guilt-ridden message is not at all what Jesus wants us to internalize. So we don't want you to get all discouraged about your journey and then just like try harder next week and everything else. Don't hear that. He's drawing you into something more redemptive, more grace-filled. And he said his yoke is easy, his burden's light. Jesus' heart is for you. He's for you. And he's just wanting to, he's just wanting to teach you, hey, to, like, don't, don't build your, your, your house over here. It's not going to work out. It, it's, it's going to fall apart. But if you just build your life over here on my teaching, I promise you, you'll be able to endure whatever life comes. His heart's for you. So apprenticing Jesus is not only possible, but according to the sermon, apprenticing after Jesus is the most rewarding kind of life that you could ever hope to experience. And I've said that for months now. I think the most rewarding kind of life that you could possibly live is one in complete obedience to Jesus' way. Um, Ryan quoted this a bit ago when he was leading us in worship. The, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come, Jesus says, to have life and have it to the full. So there's so much hope for you and I. We don't have to pretend like we don't have a gap. It's not through shame or moral performance. We just begin our training. We just begin building our life on the foundation of Jesus' teaching. And we begin our practice as an apprentice. And I have a lot of hope for you. I have a lot of hope for us. More than ever before. As I think about what our world has gone through these last couple of years, we've talked a fair bit about that over the last several months. And there's a lot of things that I've lost hope in. You know what I mean? Decency, kindness in our culture. But what I haven't lost hope in and what I've actually found more hope in and more security and more confidence in is that if we were to take Jesus at his word and build our life on his teachings, that life would be flourishing. We would flourish in life. And that's Jesus' whole argument throughout this teaching. Not right away. It's not instantaneous. But eventually, over time, slowly but surely, under the influence of Jesus' presence, through practice, you will gradually become more like him. And the best part of all of that is that the spirit of truth is here with you, taking things that, that are broken and making them new. That is the very purpose and the mission behind Jesus' redemptive project. So we all, he always finishes what he starts you and I are being made new and you can trust your rabbi. Our job is to simply begin our practice, start building on the firm foundation. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and let's pray. So, um, I always caveat things. And I'm sorry that I always do that. My, that's another pet peeve that my wife has. Um, but the reason why I caveat things, especially when it comes to our time of prayer, is because I think there is this temptation that we have in the room right now, which is to kind of go, okay, he's done it again where he talks a long time, and then we're about to go and do the other things. We're cutting down Christmas trees, and we're hanging lights on the outside of the house, and we've got Christmas shopping to do, and Monday morning's coming quickly, so come on, let's get on with life. And so what we're tempted to then do is to offer up like our token prayers, what I call token prayers, which is to just kind of say, okay, God, thanks for the thing, and yeah, the message is all right, and we're going to sing some more, and then brunch is around the corner, so come on. And the reason why I resist that is because that's, I've been convicted about praying in a half-hearted kind of a way. I want to be fully present, and I want to just challenge and encourage you to be fully present as well. 
So as we pray, Jesus, this is not um, an empty token. As we come to you, we are grateful for this possibility of communing with you. This possibility of being in your presence is a beautiful thing. And we respond to the truth. We respond to your words. And we desire to build our lives on your teaching. And for any of us who might have been tempted to build our life on our career goals or the cultural paradigm of freedom and autonomy. We surrender that now and instead we choose to build our life on the foundation of your truth, Jesus. And I just pray the spirit would fall over my sisters and brothers. God, that you would show us where to start building. Is there anything that needs to come down? And then where do you want us to start building, Jesus? We've heard your word. We think we understand fairly well. Now the job is to go and to do, to practice. So God, we pray that you would teach us to start building on your firm foundation. Um, now we're going to just move into a time of response where we come to the table of communion where we remember Jesus' sacrifice. So during the next song, just come forward and grab the bread and the cup, go back to your seat. We'll take it together as a church at the end. And then we're also going to just open up the prayer wall for anyone who needs to receive prayer for any reason. Something might have struck a chord and maybe you're ready to follow Jesus and you haven't started doing that yet, but you want to. Friends at the back of the room will be happy to do that. And then, of course, we sing. It's the only right thing to do is to give worship and praise to Jesus after his beautiful teaching, his beautiful sermon that he gives us in the scripture. So let's just praise him with everything that we have. Prayer wall is open. Tables are open. Let's sing.